0: So would you make sure that your cell phone is in the off position, please? And um, let's do whatever we need to do just to be here, to be silent, if it helps to close your eyes. May grace be in our heads and in our thinking. May grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. May grace be in our ears and in our hearing. May grace be in our mouths and in our speaking. May grace be in our hearts and in our understanding. And may grace be in our end and at our departing. Amen. And uh, no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are celebrated celebrated here. here. Thank you. Um, Although uh, Roddy mentioned this, I want to mention that uh, a couple things. Uh, Next Sunday, the intention is that for the group that was convened around the work that the consultant did for us, We'll meet immediately after this class, just to give you that input. That's what I'm hoping will happen next Sunday. The Sunday after that will be this. Um, So Dr. McDonald came to me some time ago and said, this is something the church is going to do. Would it be okay if Ordinary Life participated in that? Now here's a secret. When the senior pastor says, would it be okay, what that really means is we're going to do this. Mm -hmm. And so Ordinary Life will not meet on this Sunday. There will be a churchwide dinner. You'll get more information about that. And during this time, this space is going to be used for making those lunches that are talked about. And if you want to volunteer and participate in that, it would be a great thing to do. I intend to come and be here and do that. So um, I hope you will come and participate in that. Okay. All right. So last week I introduced this new theme that I'm calling Living in the Sacred Stream. And um, just to give you an anticipation of what's going to happen next week, I'm going to talk the title of the class is Splash.
1: (laughs) You did your homework. I did. I watched
0: the movie. (laughs) I would never seen Splash with Tom Hanks and Daryl Hannah. Uh How many of you have seen it? You remember it? Okay, we'll begin there next week. (laughs) Tom Hanks looks like an adolescent in that in that film because he probably was. But when I use the word stream, I am thinking about three things that I have in mind. First is the the stream of reality of just what is.
1: Uh oh.
0: Um, This would involve among other things, our understanding or understandings about what we're learning about the cosmos, about what we're learning about ourselves, and about what's going on in our culture. This is a, this is a vast territory about what is. And um, I want to take a, a thorough time of it, and when I said that it's a vast territory meaning that I don't want to do a half ass job of it. I thought that was really funny. (laughs) And uh, the second thing that I mean by, by the stream is stepping into the stream of the unconscious, both the unconscious that we have and our collective unconscious. And one definition that I use of the unconscious is that we don't know what we don't know, and yet what we don't know often makes tremendous decisions for us. And this is an important thing to know about. And the third thing that I mean by stream is um, getting a source as close as possible to the source of our tradition. And since we are in the Christian tradition, this has to do with learning what we can about the origin of the teachings of Jesus and about Jesus as a person. And most most reputable biblical religious scholars recognize the clear difference between the teachings of Jesus and the teachings about Jesus. Much of what is in the the documents that we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the other four that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago have been put in the mouth of Jesus by church officials to promulgate church doctrine, and they are things that Jesus never said. So that's a new theme, and I asked Holly to come and sit and tell me her response.
1: To it. <laughs> um, it's appropriate that last night I had a dream then about swimming in an ocean with whales, which is like a gift dream to me. But it will also speak to some of why the stream is sort of um, an image of discomfort. But before Bill introduced this theme for the new year, we had text chain going back and forth about talking about the symbolism of water. We traded a whole lot of titles back and forth, some of them very silly, before landing on living in the sacred stream. We marveled at how often this metaphor shows up and how different it looks in different books we're reading, poetry, in scripture, mysticism. It's not only in religious-themed books, but also, as I mentioned, in dreams and also I find a lot of it in poetry. The Water is this fixation in this sort of dystopian sci-fi book that you recommended, that I'm listening to on audio. It's about the fallout of the environmental crisis that we're currently in. The Ministry of the Future is the title. It's um, like having a news report read back to you 50 years from now. There's too much, there's so much focus on water in this book, on the oceans filling up, but they're not being enough for crops, for people, not enough to drink. It reminds me of the Coleridge's famous poem, The Rime of the Ancient Mariner, that says, water, water everywhere, and all the boards did shrink. Water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. Yeah. Personally, I love my dreams when I'm underwater. They rarely feel suffocating or scary, but they feel very safe and wondrous. In a lot of these dreams, I can open my eyes and see underwater and breathe underwater like a fish. They're always a way to play for me in the kind of ocean of my unconscious. Water is also one of the earliest images in the scriptures. God broods over the watery abyss. And it's from this endlessly creating abyss that everything else is formed. Language analysis tells us that this brooding spirit, this breath, was distinctly feminine. It repeats, water repeats, in the story of the flood. It's critical to the ministry of John the Baptist and the metaphor of rebirth. Evolutionarily, that is a hard word to say, evolutionarily, (laughs) the human eyeball is adapted from a watery eyeball. the same eyeball base as the fish eyeball. So we are, in short, our eyes are meant to be underwater. Water is our initiation. It's our beginning, and it's our destination. I'm a Pisces. I love water. (laughs) It's a second skin to me. I love snorkeling. I can think of nothing I'd rather be doing on a hot summer day than being on my back in my pool and just floating. But for some reason, when Bill introduced this stream metaphor and I was listening last Sunday, I felt uncomfortable, which was a bit surprising for me. I'll get to this in just a minute, but for the moment I want to turn our attention to the value of discomfort. This is a growth place and a place our Western minds have a really hard time landing and being with. We've largely been taught to bypass discomfort or anesthetize it in some way, to medicate it. I can't tell you exactly, my aim today is not to tell you exactly how to deal with discomfort or what beliefs to hold in the face of it, but hopefully how to be in it, what we can contemplate as we're in discomfort. I can tell you that discomfort is holy ground. It's a place where things change and happen. I hope that what we leave you with today are ways to acknowledge and attend to it.
0: Well, wait a minute. I don't want you to be discomforted. And I don't want to be discomforted. I don't want anybody here to be uncomfortable. So maybe we just better leave it at that. So no matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, As I said, next week I'll be talking about Splash and then next week we won't meet. So have a nice day. That makes you uncomfortable because it's unexpected. Nobody got up. Well, then you we weren't telling the truth, which is a big, um, that troubles me when people think that we're not telling the truth in here. <laughs> So we called today the wisdom of discomfort, and after, after we came up with a title, and we we did thirty.
1: Yeah, at least you probably have thirty more that you didn't share.
0: Um, Alan Watts has a book called *The Wisdom of Insecurity*. Uh, Pima Sheldon has a book. Call something about discomfort, comfortable with uncertainty mm-hmm. is her title of her book, and then I found this, or was found by this cartoon, which I like. The universe is handing the ego passing a note in class. You know, I, somebody used to hand you a note in class, and it says, um, "Everything is uncertain." That's that's it.
1: Hmm.
0: So. Um, I'm getting clearer about the fact that this path that we walk is going to be informed and illuminated by the teachings about and, and uh, the teachings of Jesus. So we're going to start there, but before then, just be aware that when Jesus comes on the scene, the first thing he calls for is a complete revolution in the habitual ways people have of thinking and seeing. Now to some people that message was a message of hope. Because they were on the bottom of that pyramid where they were the expendable and they didn't know what was going to happen next. So if somebody came along and said, I have an answer for you that is going to show you a way out. That's very appealing. That's one of the reasons that the far right is getting so much attention today because leaders all over the world, the far right, are saying, I have the solution. I will be your savior. And people who feel they have no hope and no place to turn find that appealing. Okay? Those at the top found the message of Jesus to be threatening and they immediately began to plot how they might discredit him. So last week um, I showed you uh, this picture of a stream. This to me is uh, not the stream that I grew up around but it's a wonderful rich image and For one thing, in order for a stream to maintain its identity, it's got to keep moving. It's got to keep flowing. It flows into existence to become temporarily a stream, right? But it keeps flowing, and in its flow, it flows out of existence to become part of the ocean. And the stream just is a stream, and it's okay with where it came from and where it's going. It's not anxious. It's just being itself. That's one truth. And how this applies to us is that um, in order to maintain our identity and integrity, we got to keep flowing. We have to keep moving, and we have to embrace the flow that we are in. So where are you stuck? Where you need to grow? Another thing is that you can't put the stream in a bucket and take it home. Not if it's going to remain a stream. You can take some of it home, but then it's not a stream anymore. It's just something you got in your bucket. So in order to have running water, you've got to let it run. You've got to let it go. And the same is... True for life, the same is true for God. So the common error, I think, that many religions make is that we mistake the finger that's pointing toward the moon. You're familiar with that image, right? For the moon. And religious organizations have encouraged that and then wanted people to suck the finger to get nusted, you know, like we suck a thumb to get security and not recognize that the finger is only pointing to the moon. So the legitimate use of religious words, images, and beliefs is to express truth, not possess it. We can only know what is. God, ourselves, each other, through an open mind. Like you see a sky through the open window, not, you can't see the sky by looking up here. You have to go out and look up to see the sky. So next week when I begin to use the narratives, uh, teachings of Jesus, did that go away?
1: No. Is this one that got out of order? It up
0: somehow, mm-hmm. completely.
1: <laughs> one of the things that happened this week was our slides got into and out of and back into order, which I thought he was playing a joke on me to make me uncomfortable in real time. But... <laughs> <laughs> So we are going to be a little surprised about whether
0: they're in order or not. um, So when I begin next week talking about Splash, about the initiation of the Jesus movement, and this, of course, is that Rembrandt painting that I've gotten smitten with, one of the things that's true about Jesus is that he embraced this teaching that I'm trying to offer now about insecurity. Because one of the things that he said is, you know the foxes? have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's insecurity. That's uncertainty. Or as Eugene Peterson translates that phrase, are you ready to rough it? We're not staying in the best ends, you know.
1: Yeah. So with that in mind, we're imagining ourselves on the rough earth floor of this proverbial inn. Let's explore discomfort. I'm gonna start with the assertion that all good teaching is disruptive. It should move us out of our comfort zones. I downloaded a recently published compilation of Meister Eckhart's writings that's called The Book of Darkness and Light. He's one of my favorite mystics. He's uh, 13th century, and the intro prompted me to remind myself of Eckhart's demise. So controversial were his teachings that he was brought to trial for heresy by Pope John the 22nd, and died before the verdict was given. So he wasn't classified as a heretic, but he was being tried for one. His teachings were intentionally paradoxical and challenging. He was a subversive thinker, which is also freeing. In the introduction to his book, it says, Eckhart dared to imagine that darkness is what matters most. And not the darkness in general, if there is such a thing, but your own darkness. Because it is the one thing you know most about, and without it, you will never know who you are or what it means to desire the light. You will never imagine that what light is all about, and that you always carry it within you. Always. Only when you are in the darkness, he wrote, do you have even the possibility of seeing the light. The darkness is a bit of a stand-in or a synonym for discomfort. It's hard to be in the dark. I want to tell you that the lightness and darkness are inseparable. It's not light over here and dark over here, but they're two parts of a whole. They can't exist without the other. And then then said in another way, discomfort is also necessary to our wholeness. It goes on to say that if you want to know this infallible, unwavering truth that is your light within, to stay away from Eckhart. (laughs) Because he doesn't tell you what it is. He guides you to your own self. The purpose of good teaching is not to provide the roadmap with exact directions and precision, but to help us in a way to see underwater, to catch a glimpse of our deepest self, and to be startled out of the eddy, the circling and circling and circling that we get into. Good teaching is sometimes comforting, but it's more often than that consciousness raising.
0: So are the translations in this book readable? Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because
0: he's not an easy read.
1: No, he's paradoxical and challenging. (laughs) So, that's right. Um, Personally, when I imagine myself in a stream, part of what makes me uncomfortable is this feeling of being half in and half out, half dry and half wet. Oops, I went one too far. Um, Half cold and half warm. You know, your feet might be cold, but the top you might be warm, but you might be cold because the air... Anyways, there's just not this feeling of being totally submerged. Streams are not usually deep. Right? They might come up to our ankles or our knees, so there's a sense of unsteadiness. They're constantly moving around us. They're sometimes slippery on the bottom. The rocks have a lot of algae on them. They're neither the beginning nor the end of a water source. They're a water source in motion. They're in between. And it's in this in-betweenness, ironically, that I am uncomfortable. I want to get out into the ocean. I want to be submerged. And it's ironic that our podcast is in between. So here we are wrestling with this in betweenness all of the time. And it's the place where I feel the most uncomfortable. But we can't actually escape it. No matter how hard we try, that is where we always are.
0: So I want to invite you to look around you better. Um, yeah, look at you, look on you, look at what you're wearing. Um, especially on your feet. Feel the air around you in this space. Look at the space where we're having this meeting. Um, think about how you got here. I don't know what you did last night, but uh, the other night we went to the symphony. Think about how you spent your evening last night. Think about where you slept last night. Think about the food that you're going to prepare tonight or order in if you're an Uber Eats person. Mm I could go on, but every single item on that list is a result of someone at some point being uncomfortable with the way things work and decided to do something about it. People didn't like walking on the earth with bare feet, so they invented shoes. Now, of course, people have monetized this stuff. That's true. That's our word in the capitalistic system, right? Monetized. But they were all started because people were uncomfortable living in Houston without air conditioning. So Mr. Crane invented the air conditioning.
1: Not the owner of the Astros. Huh? Not the owner of the Astros. <laughs> no. No.
0: They had the owner of the air conditioner's funeral here the other day. There were thousands of fans.
1: Uh. (laughs) That's
0: not in my notes. It's a a condition. I'm sorry. So the the advertisers cater to this and tell us there's something that you don't have, which you have will make you more comfortable than you are now because you don't have it. So one of the streams we're in is what I'm calling um, cosmic evolution. We're the only species that has survived to the point of self-reflection. Now this self-reflection is very difficult. My um, genius friend in California, whom I mentioned to you last week, sent me a meme the other day that said, um, what would you have been doing in Nazi Germany in the 1930s. Well, that's what you're doing now. Meaning we do what we do and we're unaware largely of the social context in which we did it. I know this is true because I grew up in Jim Crow South, Tennessee, colored water fountains and white water fountains and it was just the way things were. It was just, now there were people who didn't like it and who rebelled against it, thank goodness. Tomorrow we'll celebrate Martin Luther King's um, anniversary. But that that South was perfectly acceptable to many people, still is to a lot, and there would many people like to go back to that. Yeah.
1: I'm, <clears throat> there's so much to say about that, but I'm, One of the things I I had to ask myself this week is, okay, I'm a counterphobic six on the Enneagram. I, like, am driven by fear, (laughs) but I also, as a counterphobic six, dive into the fear. So what does she do with discomfort? She challenges her favorite teacher and friend, who, by the way, also confessed to being uncomfortable with the stream image. We both were kind of like, yeah, a little edgy that he needed to do, we needed to do an active imagination meditation about the stream and imagine ourselves in it as part of our daily spiritual practice. Guess who did her homework? <laughs> did you ever do your homework? <laughs> so as a counterpoint, I did the homework halfway. Halfway? Oh man, that's so in between of you. I know. <laughs> uh, so I dove headlong into this fear. It's, it's kind of a compulsion to take the challenge as Eckhart would say, to examine yourself and wherever you find yourself, to take leave of yourself, to learn to observe the self exactly where you are without looking for an escape from the discomfort of it or getting attached to where you are, it's challenging. We don't want to get stuck in the eddy. We don't want to drift downstream untethered, and we certainly don't want to push against the river. We, we can't. In the meditation of imagining myself in the stream, I said earlier I so quickly wanted to move into the ocean where I could swim and have some feeling of control over my body, that I can move with the water, or I could, or I could submerge myself in it. In the stream, however, the best way to navigate it is to move slowly, with the flow, and with sure footing a little trickier.
0: And there's snakes under
1: the rocks. And there's snakes under the rocks. I don't want to think of going with the flow as a passive position. To turn that phrase on its head a bit, we could say that it's not this kind of easygoing laissez-faireness about life, but it is going with the flow is being with reality, being in the flow of reality. If the flow is rough, you're with it. If the flow is gentle, you're with it. However the current shows up, you don't fight it, but allow yourself to be where it is, to be uncomfortable with it. To use another water analogy, think of how we are taught to get out of a dangerous riptide. You're taught to either tread water calmly while it's sucking you under, or swim in the direction of the current. Swimming against the current can literally kill you. That's why people die in riptides, is because they try to swim back in rather than out. When Bill asked us to think about an experience we might have had with a stream, I thought of one of my favorite places to play when I was little. I grew up on a dead-end street in West University that intersected with Poor Farm Ditch, the one that runs right along Edlow Street. And at the time, it was Tangley Street was the only one with a little footbridge that crossed over and gave you a shortcut to JMH and elementary school and. That was, so a lot of people came to Tangley Street to cross over Poor Farm Ditch. And it was, you know, it's just a tributary of Houston's massive bayou system. It's bound by sloping concrete walls, which evidently are buckling now, chain link fence and oleanders that bloom in pink and white, I think to mask this ditch. (laughs) I'm trying to give you a sense of how unglorious it is, but this was my stream. I played in it nearly every day, barefoot. nasty. Go ahead and gag. (laughs) I'm either the most well-inoculated person we know, or I'm dying of some rare disease that we've not yet discovered. I'm not sure. But when I was little, I delighted in this little stream. I would go in with jars to catch minnows and tadpoles. After a light rain, we would find crawdads, crawfish, crawdads, And I once released a hermit crab that I brought back from Galveston into... (laughs) Poor guy. I named him Fred. I think Fred is no longer. But I thought, well, he'll just be among friends. He'll get back to the ocean eventually. It was some sort of bad experiment. (laughs) It was also our burial ground for dead goldfish. We would just go dump them in the ditch. I know. We balled up strands of algae like green snowballs and threw them at each other. I mean, this is gross. (laughs) But it was so fun as a kid. We would lift up the rocks, the little rocks that would get in there and the branches. And we'd pull things off the branches. And there were two ends to this ditch where it runs through West U. And we would go as far as this kind of ditch would allow to, to either end. There would this grate at this giant gaping maw of a tunnel that wouldn't let us go any further. So we would walk to that, end, and then we'd walk to the other end. We must have walked miles in the ditch. No grown-ups ever came looking for us there either. Yeah, it was our private world, and my inner child loves that stream. She has no idea how gross it is. She, you know, this, as weird as it sounds, poor farm ditch was a bit of a sanctuary for me.
0: So, um, I want you to get used to a phrase, Jesus was a Jewish mystic in the prophetic tradition of his religion. Okay, just get used to that. As a definition. Somebody asks you, who was Jesus? You can say. At least this definition. Jesus was a Jewish mystic. In the prophetic tradition of his religion. So you will see next week that his story begins with this clarion call that comes from the prophetic tradition, Isaiah. Scholars say 2nd Isaiah now, but to prepare the way in the wilderness to make clear a way that we're going to try to follow. Now what I want to say is that the obstacles in the way are the way. Hmm. That is to say, it is our discomfort that makes necessary our thinking in ways we have not yet thought of that create new possibilities. Comprende?
1: Meister Eckhart calls this the wayless way.
0: I like that. Mm -hmm. The wayless way. I'll say it again. Our discomfort makes necessary our thinking in ways we have not yet conceived of that create New possibilities. So, the very things that I asked you to think of earlier the shoes that you're wearing, the controlled temperature of the air, the food we eat they're all solutions to discomfort. So, Jesus comes on the scene and he says, You know, you have to think differently. It didn't say you have to behave differently initially. What he said, you have to change the way you think. Now, every generation creates a culture. I mentioned a minute ago that Nazi Germany created a culture. We are living in a culture right now. Probably several. I was thinking when I was I mentioned earlier about living in Jim Crow South, uh, it was while living in Jim Crow South that this country added to the Pledge of Allegiance "One Nation Under God." What in the world does that even mean? And why did we do that? I mean, there's an answer to why we did that, but and what effect did it have? What is the use? The objectivity that's required to see our culture is very difficult. I can't see very clearly the situation that I'm in. It's like trying to see your own eyes. It's very difficult to do. That's why we have prophets. And the problem is we don't like prophets because they make us uncomfortable. Our boss here, my boss here, is not called St. Paul's Senior prophet. He's called St. Paul's senior pastor. Pastors comfort. Chaplains comfort. Prophets strike. They come in, they say what they say, and then they get out of town. And Jesus knew that. He moved around a lot. I, uh, <clears throat> I close my daily practice now. Um, have I ever mentioned every <laughs> daily practice to you?
1: Did I mention you forgot to do the one I assigned you this week?
0: <laughs> you can tease me about it. It's okay. Um, I'm a seven on the Enneagram. Holly mentioned that she's a counterphobic six. Sevens are head type, so um, my daily practice starts with Usually, I write down my dreams and then um, I read uh, something, and I have a set of readings that I end my daily practice with, and um, it's included. I change it over the over time, but I've kept the what's known as the prayer of St. Francis as the concluding part of what I read for a long time now. It's called the Prayer of St. Francis. It was not written by St. Francis. It was written by a priest, a Roman Catholic priest uh, in Paris. Sometime around 1912, it doesn't belong to St. Francis. But it's wise, it's useful, it's um, great spiritual guidance. And it's easy to to learn. What does that say? Oh, well, that's out of order. (laughs) I'll find it. Um that's out of order. There you go. Okay, here here it is. There. You can memorize this. It's the first verse of it. Lord make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me so love. Where there is injury, pardon where there is doubt, faith, where there is despair, hope, where there is darkness, light, where there is sorrow, joy. It's easy to remember. I'm I'm reading Christian Wyman's new book. Um,
1: Zero to the Bone. Huh? Zero
0: to the Bone. Zero to the Bone. Oh, I love his stuff. And he says there's something to be said by memorizing things by heart. Not by mind, but by heart. Put this in your heart. Now so you can memorize this, right? Hatred, injury, doubt, despair, darkness, sadness are not arenas of comfort. But they are the places around us and within us that need love, forgiveness, faith, hope, light, and joy.
1: As you were talking, I remembered this very short poem by Hafiz, in which the fish says about this camel ride, something ain't right and I am so damn thirsty. What the fish does is notice that he's out of water and, and we swim in the water that we swim in and it's very hard to observe ourselves in the water in which we swim. So the fish gives us this idea that, like, oh, we can get out of the water and we can observe ourselves from that place, even if it's uncomfortable. And what comes up for me as I shared the image of my stream from my childhood is this discrepancy between my adult self who feels uncomfortable with the stream and my child self who felt nothing but curiosity and delight about it. Where did she go? And is she recoverable? She's in there. I turned to some different wisdom teachings this week about the stream and water, which in some cases became that full-on water metaphor, but they are relevant enough to today's teaching. What I'd like to invite from you is a sense of, in, of curiosity and play, your inner child. For me, this comes through poetry. Poetry delights me. Guided imagery, I'm a very visual person, so imagining myself in a stream was a really important thing for me to do. Can I see it? And then creating art is a big one for me as well. For you, it might be something else. It could be a mindful walk, listening to the nature sounds. And difficult in the city, but they're there. Whatever helps you to kind of peek under the rocks or move the sticks around a little bit, hopefully encourages you to be in an experience of yourself as part of the stream, not separate from it. The night that we settled on this title, Living in the Sacred Stream, this this Hafiz poem found me. I have a book called A Year with Hafiz. And it reads, I used to know my name. Now I don't. I think a river understands me. For what does it call itself in that blessed moment when it starts emptying into the infinite luminous sea and opening every aspect of self wider than it ever thought possible, each drop of itself now running to embrace and unite with a million new friends. And you were there in my union with all, everyone who will ever read this page. When we enter into the sacred stream, and allow for that holy discomfort. Like the river, we may come to unknow our names, but know ourselves in a much wider way than we ever thought possible. Discomfort is an invitation to unknow, to unknow the things that we think we know, and to be curious, and then to relearn, to reknow, to take leave of the self in some way, of all that certainty that we think protects us and identifies us, and then to recover the self in a deeper way. There's a book Bill mentioned, Unbinding, and yes, it is a, a difficult read. It's, um, but it's really good. I think if you take it slow and take it in bite-sized chunks, it's really an apt metaphor. And she uses the stream as a way for being and seeing. Getting out of the eddy and into the stream is an attention an invitation to attentiveness, to pay attention. If we are to see the eddy as a separate entity that remains ignorant of both itself and everything around it, circling and circling and circling and circling, it's not aware that it's connected to the stream. As the poem says, it hasn't widened its sense of self yet. And Singh indicates that when we become aware of the stream, When we become aware of what she calls the fleeting co-arising of ourselves in concert with everything else, when we can see that when we witness the birds, the squirrels, the deer drinking from the banks of the stream, or the distant mountains, the clouds, the wind, that's a moment of awareness. We become aware of everything around us. In the city, it may look like, oh, tuning into the traffic noises with the rustle of the trees, with the chirping of the birds. I don't know if anyone else has noticed that in Houston, we hear fewer birds now, if there's any people who listen to that. But we're part of all of that. When we get out of our eddy mind by entering into the stream, we're part of and witness to a moment in cosmic time, a moment in evolution. This is, to me, about noticing the dynamic quality of every moment. It's about curiosity and engaging with the things around us and bearing witness to this kind of overwhelmingly beautiful but also heart-wrenching fact that we are not separate. And we realize our not separateness. We also realize that we are responsible to and for one another. We are all responsible for one another. And to cultivate that awareness is to have some humility that we're not yet there. We always need to be in the stream. If I enter the stream with this mind, with curiosity, with that childlike play to kind of lift up the rocks and the branches, I'm, suddenly I'm less self-conscious about that half-in, half-out state I'm less worried about slipping on the rocks, and I'm more aware of my surroundings. When I was a little girl, when my bayou stream, however gross it is, was part of me. Probably literally is in the bacteria that I cultivated because of it. And I was part of it. I was awake to this reality because I wasn't self-conscious about it. I wasn't overthinking. I wasn't so trained in that overthinking mind. I was more free. And with this carefree wisdom of a child, I was what Singh calls being a stream enterer. So many of us get so far away from our innate curiosity and sense of play, and maybe are also complete and total lack of judgment about what's sanitary and what is not. But that aside, what does it take for you, for us, to re-enter the stream with curiosity and play. Do we have time for this or do we need to move on?
0: I'm thinking that we are entering a period of time. You know, all the pundits are writing about how 2024 is gonna be such a year. (laughs) Um, I think we're ripe for moving into the sacred stream. I'm pleased with the theme. Holly mentioned earlier Meister Eckhart, um, and I asked if the book that you got, which I don't
1: have. It's a book I don't have. Well, you can, I'll, I'll get it for you. I need another book. <laughs> I know where to get books.
0: <laughs> uh, we we quote him frequently because um, he's, he's in a lot of sources that we read. He, it's difficult to read as a direct source for me. Um, I have to, Reading the way Jim Finley says to read to write it down in what I think he's saying and to write that again in my own words and it's, just, it's work to read Mr. Eckhart the quote that we love by him is the eye with which God sees me is the same eye with which I see God that's non-dual teaching and uh, and, and and he he also prayed this prayer um, uh, God rid me of God. <laughs> I mean, so here you have this um, devout believer, outstanding theologian, saying what sounds like an absurd line. And what he wanted to be free of were ideas about God, beliefs about God, even good ones, because they limited his direct experience, and that was what he was focused on. So you and I, we live in the culture That we can't see but it is one where we are taught to observe not to engage we are taught to be passive we are taught to be entertained right I mean even people now when you ask them what was your experience of going to church today well I didn't get anything out of it and, and I just want to scream, you're not supposed to get anything out of it. Just to do it. You're not supposed to get anything out of spiritual practice. If you approach spiritual practice with a needing to get something out of it, you're going to be disappointed and quit within days. So we can stand on the bank of the stream and observe that's an option. So I'm going to put on my Meister Eckhart hat and give you a really mixed message, because every truth is a coin that has two sides. So as I said, we get into the stream with no idea of getting anything out of it. I know I get teased about encouraging you to have a spiritual practice, but um, do it. (laughs) But do it with no thought of getting something out of it. We do spiritual practice not to attain, but to experience. And as I've said about that or about the teachings in ordinary life, there's nothing in our culture that supports what I've just said. So in any of the senses that I'm using the word stream in this theme, whether it's about what is, whether it's about the unconscious, whether it's about the teachings that we attempt to follow, the goal is to abide within these realms and not ponder them from afar. Get the difference? We get into the stream to do two things. To wait and to pay attention. Spiritual practice is an invitation to go beyond what you believe. Spiritual practice is not about improving yourself. It's not about becoming better at something. There's nothing about you that needs improving. Just be aware. And and be aware that in this present moment you can't Define it or divide ourselves from it. The rule for authentic spiritual practice is look, see, pay attention. So the mystery of life is not a problem to be solved. It's a reality to be be experienced. That's one side of the coin. Now, the the other side of the coin is so paradoxical. If you do it with no thought of the outcome, the payoff is tremendous. I want to read you some some um, words that were sent to me this week by Matt Russell. Some of you know. Matt didn't write these. Your new life is going to cost you your old one. It's going to cost you your comfort zone and your sense of direction. It's going to cost you relationships and friends. It's going to cost you being liked and understood. It doesn't matter. Hmm. The people who are meant for you are going to meet you on the other side. You're going to build a new comfort zone around the things that actually move you forward. Instead of being liked, you're going to be loved. Instead of being understood, you're going to be seen. Are you going to lose is what was built for a person you no longer are. I love that. Mm -hmm.
1: Yikes. Well said.
0: (laughs) So we are encouraging you and us to lean into the wisdom of discomfort. So now it fits. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step. I'll see you here next Sunday. Thank you.